A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 55. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 19. Back Through Nubia, Part 1. There are fourteen temples between Abu Simbel and Philae, to say nothing of grottoes, tombs, and other ruins. As a rule, people begin to get tired of temples about this time, and vote them too plentiful. Meek travellers go through them as a duty, but the greater number rebel. Our happy couple, I grieve to say, went over to the majority. Dead to shame, they openly proclaimed themselves bored. They even skipped several temples. For myself I was never bored by them. Though they had been twice as many, I should not have wished them fewer. Miss Martineau tells how, in this part of the river, she was scarcely satisfied to sit down to breakfast without having first explored a temple. But I could have breakfasted, dined, supped on temples. My appetite for them was insatiable, and grew with what it fed upon. I went over them all. I took notes of them all. I sketched them every one. I may as well say at once that I shall reproduce but few of those notes, and only some of those sketches in the present volume. If, surrounded by their local associations, these ruins fail to interest many who travel far to see them, it is not to be supposed that they would interest readers at home. Here and there, perhaps, might be one who would care to pore with me over every broken sculpture, to spell out every half-legible cartouche, to trace through Greek and Roman influences, which are nowhere more conspicuous than in these Nubian buildings, the slow deterioration of the Egyptian style. But the world, for the most part, reserves itself, and rightly, for the great epochs and the great names of the past, and because it has not yet had too much of Karnak, of Abu Simbel, of the pyramids, it sets slight store by these minor monuments which record the periods of foreign rule and decline of native art. For these reasons, therefore, I propose to dismiss very briefly many places upon which I bestowed hours of delightful labor. We left Abu Simbel just as the moon was rising on the evening of the 18th of February, and dropped down with the current for three or four miles before mooring for the night. At six next morning the men began rowing, and at half-past eight the heads of the Colossi were still looking placidly after us across a ridge of intervening hills. They were then more than five miles distant in a direct line, but every feature was still distinct in the early daylight. One went up again and again as long as they remained in sight, and bade good-bye to them at last with that same heartache which comes of a farewell view of the Alps. When I say that we were seventeen days getting from Abu Simbel to Philae, and that we had the wind against us from sunrise to sunset almost every day, it will be seen that our progress was of the slowest. To those who were tired of temples, and to the crew who were running short of bread, these long days of lying up under the bank, of rocking to and fro in the middle of the river, were dreary enough. Slowly but surely, however, the hard-won miles go by. Sometimes the barren desert hems us in to right and left, with never a blade of green between the rock and the river. Sometimes, as at Tosco, we come upon an open tract, where there are palms and casterberry plantations and cornfields alive with quail. The idle man goes ashore at Tosco with his gun, while the little lady and the rider climb a solitary rock about two hundred feet above the river. The bank shelves here, and a crescent-like wave of inundation, about three miles in length, overflows it every season. 
From this height one sees exactly how far the wave goes, and how it must make a little bay when it is there. Now it is a bay of barley, full to the brim and rippling with the breeze. Beyond the green comes the desert, the one defined against the other as sharply as water against land. The desert looks wonderfully old beside the young green of the corn, and the Nile flows wide among sandbanks like a tidal river near the sea. The village, squared off in parallelograms like a cattle market, lies mapped out below. A field-glass shows that the houses are simply cloistered courtyards roofed with palm-thatch, the sheikh's house being larger than the rest, with the usual open space and spreading sycamore in front. There are women moving to and fro in the courtyards, and husbandmen in the castorberry pastures. A funeral with a train of whalers goes out presently towards the burial-ground on the edge of the desert. The idle man, a slight figure with a veil twisted round his hat, wades half-hidden through the barley, signalling his whereabouts every now and then by a puff of white smoke. A cargo-boat, stripped and shorn, comes floating down the river, making no visible progress. A native felucca, carrying one tattered brown sail, goes swiftly up with the wind at a pace that will bring her to Abu Simbel before nightfall. Already she has passed the village, and those black specks yonder, which we had never dreamed were crocodiles, have slipped off into the water at her approach. And now she is far in the distance, that glowing, illimitable distance, traversed by long silvery reaches of river, and ending in a vast flat, so blue and aerial that, but for some three or four notches of purple peaks on the horizon, one could scarcely discern the point at which land and sky melt into each other. Ibram comes next, then Dur, then Wadi Sabua. At Ibram, as at Dur, there are fair families whose hideous light hair and blue eyes, grafted on brown-black skins, date back to Bosnian forefathers of three hundred and sixty years ago. These people give themselves airs, and are the haute noblesse of the place. The men are lazy and quarrelsome. The women trail longer robes, wear more beads and rings, and are altogether more unattractive and castor-oily than any we have seen elsewhere. They keep slaves, too. We saw these unfortunates trotting at the heels of their mistresses like dogs. Knowing slavery to be officially illegal in the dominions of the Khedive, the M.B.s applied to a dealer who offered them an Abyssinian girl for ten pounds. This useful article, warranted a bargain, was to sweep, wash, milk, and churn, but was not equal to cooking. The M.B.s, it is needless to add, having verified the facts, retired from the transaction. At Dare we pay a farewell visit to the temple, and at Amada, arriving towards close of day, we see the great view for the last time in the glory of sunset. And now, though the north wind blows persistently, it gets hotter every day. The crocodiles like it, and come out to bask in the sunshine. Called up one morning in the middle of breakfast, we see two, a little one and a big one, on a sandbank nearby. The men rest upon their oars. The boat goes with the stream. No one speaks, no one moves. Breathlessly, and in dead silence, we drift till we are close beside them. The big one is rough and black, like the trunk of a London elm, and measures full eighteen feet in length. The little one is pale and greenish, and glistens like glass. All at once the old one starts, doubles itself up for a spring, and disappears with a tremendous splash. But the little one, apparently unconscious of danger, lifts its tortoise-like head, and eyes us sidewise. Presently some one whispers, and that whisper breaks the spell. Our little crocodile flings up its tail, plunges down the bank, and is gone in a moment. 
The crew could not understand how the idle man, after lying in wait for crocodiles at Abu Simbel, should let this rare chance pass without a shot. But we had heard since then of so much indiscriminate slaughter at the second cataract, that he was resolved to bear no part in the extermination of those old historic reptiles. That a sportsman should wish for a single trophy is not unreasonable, but that scores of crack shot should go up every winter, killing and wounding these wretched brutes at an average rate from twelve to eighteen per gun, is mere butchery, and cannot be too strongly reprehended. Year by year the creatures become shyer and fewer, and the day is probably not far distant when a crocodile will be as rarely seen below Semna as it is now rarely seen below Aswan. The thermometer stands at eighty-five degrees in the saloon of the Philae when we come one afternoon to Wadi Sabua, where there is a solitary temple drowned in sand. It was approached once by an avenue of sphinxes and standing colossi, now shattered and buried. The roof of the Praneus, if it was ever roofed, is gone. The inner halls and the sanctuary, all excavated in the rock, are choked and impassable. Only the propylon stands clear of sand, and that, massive as it is, looks as if one touch of a battering-ram would bring it to the ground. Every huge stone in it is loose. Every block in the cornice seems tottering in its place. In all this we fancy we recognize the work of our Abu Simbel earthquake. At Wadi Sabua we see a fat native. The fact claims record because it is so uncommon. A stalwart, middle-aged man, dressed in a tattered kilt and carrying a palm-staff in his hand, he stands before us the living double of the famous wooden statue at Bulak. He is followed by his two wives and three or four children, all bent upon trade. The women have trinkets, the boys a live chameleon and a small stuffed crocodile for sale. While the painter is bargaining for the crocodile and L for a nose-ring, the writer makes acquaintance with a pair of self-important hoopoes, who live in the pylon and evidently regard it as a big nest of their own building. They sit observing me curiously while I sketch, nodding their crested poles and chattering disparagingly, like a couple of critics. By and by comes a small black bird with a white breast, and sings deliciously. It is like no little bird that I have ever seen before, but the song that pours so lavishly from its tiny throat is as sweet and brilliant as a canary's. Powerless against the wind, the dahabiya lies idle day after day in the sun. Sometimes when we chance to be near a village, the natives squat on the bank and stare at us for hours together. The moment any one appears on deck, they burst into a chorus of bakshish. There is but one way to get rid of them, and that is to sketch them. The effect is instantaneous. With a good-sized block and a pencil, a whole village may be put to flight at a moment's notice. If, on the other hand, one wishes for a model, the difficulty is insuperable. The painter tried in vain to get some of the women and girls, not a few of whom were really pretty, to sit for their portraits. I well remember one haughty beauty, shaped and draped like a Juno, who stood on the bank one morning, scornfully watching all that was done on deck. She carried a flat basket, backhanded, and her arms were covered with bracelets, and her fingers with rings. Her little girl, in a Madame Nubia fringe, clung to her skirts, half wondering, half frightened. The painter sent out an ambassador plenipotentiary to offer anything from sixpence to half a sovereign if she would only stand like that for half an hour. The manner of her refusal was grand. She drew her shawl over her face, 
took her child's hand and stalked away like an offended goddess. The writer, meanwhile, hidden behind a curtain, had snatched a tiny sketch from the cabin window. On the western bank, somewhere between Wadi Sabua and Maharaka, in a spot quite bare of vegetation, stands the ruins of a fortified town which is neither mentioned by Murray nor entered in the maps. It is built high on a base of reddish rock and commands the river and the desert. The painter and writer explored it one afternoon in the course of a long ramble. Climbing first a steep slope strewn with masonry, we came to the remains of a stone gateway. Finding this impassable, we made our way through a breach in the battlemented wall, and thence up a narrowed road down which had been poured a cataract of debris. Skirting a ruined postern at the top of this road, we found ourselves in a close labyrinth of vaulted arcades built of crude brick, and lit at short intervals by openings in the roof. These strange streets, for they were streets, were lined on either side by small dwellings built of crude brick on stone foundations. We went into some of the houses, mere ruined courts and roofless chambers, in which were no indications of hearths or staircases. In one lay a fragment of stone column about fourteen inches in diameter. The air in these ancient streets was foul and stagnant, and the ground was everywhere heaped with fragments of black, red, and yellowish pottery, like the shards of elephantine and filet. A more desolate place in a more desolate situation I never saw. It looked as if it had been besieged, sacked, and abandoned a thousand years ago, which is probably under the mark, for the character of the pottery would seem to point to the period of Roman occupation. Noting how the brick superstructures were reared on apparently earlier masonry, we concluded that the beginnings of this place were probably Egyptian, and the later work Roman. The marvel was that any town should have been built in so barren a spot, there being not so much as an inch-wide border of lentils for a mile or more between the river and the desert. Having traversed the place from end to end, we came out through another breach on the westward side, and thinking to find a sketchable point of view inland, struck down towards the plain. In order to reach this, one must first skirt a deep ravine which divides the rock of the citadel from the desert. Following the brink of this ravine to the point at which it falls into the level, we found to our great surprise that we were treading the banks of an extinct river. It was full of sand now, but beyond all question it had once been full of water. It came evidently from the mountains over towards the northwest. We could trace its windings for a long way across the plain, thence through the ravine, and on southwards in a line parallel with the Nile. Here beneath our feet were the water-worn rocks through which it had fretted its way, and yonder, half buried in sand, were the boulders it had rounded and polished, and borne along in its course. I doubt, however, if when it was a river of water this stream was half as beautiful as now, when it is a river of sand. It was turbid then, no doubt, and charged with sediment. Now it is more golden than Pactolus, and covered with ripples more playful and undulating than were ever modelled by Canaletti's pencil. Supposing yonder town to have been founded in the days when the river was a river, and the plain fertile and well watered, the mystery of its position is explained. It was protected in front by the Nile, and in the rear by the ravine and the river. But how long ago was this? Here apparently was an independent stream, taking its rise among the Libyan mountains. 
It dated back, consequently, to a time when these barren hills collected and distributed water. That is to say, to a time when it used to rain in Nubia. And that time must have been before the rocky barrier broke down at Silsilis, in the old days when the land of Cush flowed with milk and honey. It would rain even now in Nubia if it could. That same evening when the sun was setting we saw a fan-like drift of dappled cloud miles high above our heads, melting, as it seemed, in fringes of iridescent vapor. We could distinctly see those fringes forming, wavering, and evaporating, unable to descend as rain, because dispersed at a high altitude by radiated heat from the desert. This, with one exception, was the only occasion on which I saw clouds in Nubia. Coming back we met a solitary native, with a string of beads in his hand and a knife up his sleeve. He followed us for a long way, volunteering a but half-intelligible story about some unknown berba in the desert. We asked where it was, and he pointed up the course of our unknown river. "'You have seen it?' said the painter. "'Maret Keter, many times. "'How far is it? "'One day's march in the Hagar, desert. "'And have no Inglesa ever been to look for it?' He shook his head at first, not understanding the question, then looked grave and held up one finger. Our stock of Arabic was so small, and his so interlarded with Kenzie, that we had great difficulty in making out what he said next. We gathered, however, that some Hawaji, travelling alone and on foot, had once gone in search of this berba, and never come back. Was he lost? Was he killed? Who could say? It was a long time ago, said the man with the beads. It was a long time ago, and he took no guide with him. We would have given much to trace the river to its source, and search for this unknown temple in the desert but it is one of the misfortunes of this kind of travelling that one cannot easily turn aside from the beaten track. The hot season is approaching, the river is running low, the daily cost of the dahabiyah is exorbitant, and in Nubia, where little or nothing can be bought in the way of food, the dilatory traveller risks starvation. It was something, however, to have seen with one's own eyes that the Nile, instead of flowing for a distance of twelve hundred miles unfed by any affluent, had here received waters of a tributary. To those who have a south breeze behind them, the temples must now follow in quick succession. We, however, achieved them by degrees, and rejoiced when our helpless dahabiyah lay within rowing reach of anything worth seeing. Thus we pulled down one day to Maharaka, in itself a dull ruin, but picturesquely desolate. Seen as one comes up the bank on landing, Two parallel rows of columns stand boldly up against the sky, supporting a ruined entablature. In the foreground a few stunted dome-palms starve in an arid soil. The barren desert closes in the distance. We are beset here by an insolent crowd of savage-looking men and boys, and impudent girls with long frizzy hair and Nubian fringes, who pester us with beads and pebbles, dance, shout, slap their legs and clap their hands in our faces, and pelt us when we go away. One ragged warrior brandishes an antique brass-mounted firelock full six feet long in the barrel, and some of the others carry slender spears. The temple, a late Roman structure, would seem to have been wrecked by earthquake before it was completed. The masonry is all in the rough, 
pillars as they came from the quarry, capitals blocked out, waiting for the carver. These unfinished ruins, of which every stone looks new, as if the work was still in progress, affect one's imagination strangely. On a fallen wall south of the portico, the idle man detected some remains of a Greek inscription, but for hieroglyphic characters or cartouches by which to date the building, we looked in vain. End of section 55